This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Fly on the Wall. And the author is Walt Brown, and Walt joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Walt. How are you doing? Uh, nice to be with you, Steve. Well, thanks for being with us, Walt Brown. He goes back uh, a lot of years in radio and television, a sportscaster, and he's broadcast more than 20 different sports. Uh, we'll learn more about your background in a moment, Walt, but let me read what you've written about a fly on the wall. You say it really isn't about the fly. It's about all those sports heroes and other celebrities that the fly saw during decades on the walls of major sports and society. You being the fly. This is, book is not about you, not a memoir or anything like that, but it's kind of just the people you met and some of the events you were part of. Uh, really a different take on, uh, on uh, sports. Yeah, I think it is. I, I really think it is a very different book than uh, than those that I've read. And, and actually, I, I need to thank a, a longtime friend, a best friend in grammar school and high school, uh, Al Fleming, and, and my wife, uh, uh, Jackie. Uh, the two of them were the ones that said, you got to write a book. And, and it, it started really just two or three years ago, uh, the idea of writing the book. Uh, and Al and I were talking, and he made some comment about Muhammad Ali, and I said, yeah, well, when? And, and he said, oh, you met him? You know him? And I said, well, that's what I did for 30 years. And so uh, uh, then he starts name-dropping other people, and I said, yeah, no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so uh, uh, that's what started it. And uh, what it is is anecdotal stories about uh major names, most of whom the readers will know, uh, that uh, other people were not necessarily privy to at the time the the incidents or events took place, uh, because we're not talking about, there are a few, uh, there's a this, this discussion of a Willie Mays catch that's impressive. The catch was impressive, I don't know if the discussion's impressive, but uh, uh, there, there are a few things like that, and, and uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, the great uh, Cynthia Potter uh, diving, uh, best women's diver ever, and you know she maybe she and Greg Luganis are considered the greatest divers ever. So some people think she's better than Greg even. So at any rate, and and she's down in uh, in Texas, I think. So uh, you know we got uh, listeners and viewers all over the place. Uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, Phoenix, uh, all those places are places where. Uh, I've been and met people and, and incidents and their movie star anecdotes in there uh, that, that tie into things. And, and then there's also, because we're talking about a period in the 60s and 70s that in some ways it was, it's, it's like today where there's, a, uh, there's the concern of that time was the Vietnam War uh, and people anti-that. There's the Black Power Movement uh, uh, racially and and there's problems racially against uh, Hispanics and Latinos and and then there, there was Title IX. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon signed Title IX, giving equality to women in college athletics. And uh, so there, 
there's just all of that at that time period that is uh, similar to some of the problems that are uh, going on today. And, and so how that spilled into sports at the time is also part of the book. Well, let's talk about some of your people you met, uh, your impressions, uh, what you learned from them, uh, especially looking back. All, it's often uh, more philosophical often as we look back than the actual event, but you already mentioned Muhammad Ali. Everybody has been, of course, one of the great sports athletes in the in the whole world, uh, an incredible boxer, uh, a lot of charisma. He seemed to have it all. What what was the experience with him? Well, I, uh, I met uh, Ali uh, on several different occasions, uh, and uh, the one that, that fascinates me the most that I... I to be honest, I almost hate to mention it because it gives away it gives away the uh, the story that nobody's heard unless you read the book. Uh, but uh, he was coming to Phoenix, uh, and it had said ahead of time he was not going to talk to any sports reporters, uh, newspaper, radio, TV, anything of that nature. He was coming to help the economic status of South Phoenix, and uh, that he would not be doing any uh, any sports interviews and. Uh, in the 60s, uh, local television stations, pretty much most of them, had uh, trying to, again, because of racial divisions, et cetera, uh, they would have a, uh, uh, at that time called black, but I guess now politically correct, you'd say African-American, but uh, they would have a show, a weekly show Sunday morning that was uh, had a host that was of the uh, ethnic nature, and dealt with problems that were geared toward that ethnicity. And there's one for Latin Americans, too, or, or Mexicans, or whatever we're calling them at the time. So uh, anyway, the guy that, that was going to do the, the uh, weekly show on, on um, black culture, African-American culture, came up to me, and he says, uh, Muhammad Ali's coming to visit. He says, you want to get an interview with him? And I said, well, no, he's not talking to sports. He says, well, you'll be in the lobby tomorrow morning uh, at you know, whatever, early hour, and uh, I'll see about that. And so, uh, sure enough, I was there the next morning, and the only uh, white person in the place except for the uh, secretary at the front desk uh, and a young girl, teenage girl, preteen girl, uh, lying on a, or sitting on a bench and then lying down on it against one of the walls. And... Uh, so I'm there, and there are a lot of black men, African-Americans, uh, in the lobby waiting, and they're waiting for Ali. And uh, I, I'm wondering what the heck the, the young girl is doing there. And so I'd recognized her because uh, I'd interviewed her before. She was a national age group champion in track and field and uh, for 12 and under. And so I... Uh, went over to her, and, and she said hi again, and I said, uh, anything I can do for you? Are you here to see me, or what? She says, no, I'm here to see Wallace and Ladmo, and, and that was the huge children's show. Again, at the time, why do they still have children's shows, but maybe not on a local station? <laughs> it was a big, big uh, children's show. She says, I'm here to see them. So anyway, she's there, and about that time, there's this noise in, in outside in the parking lot, and these two long black limousines <laughs> uh, pull up, and the second one has got... Uh, Islamic flags on the front fenders and everything, and all these guys with get out and stand guard, and, and here comes Ali and no Fez, and 
big smile and everything, and he comes in and he's saying hi to everybody. He goes over to meet the guy that's uh, going to do the show, the weekly show. He's going to tape it with him, and, and the guy gestures over at me, and Ali is, sort of starts to wave and come over, and his guards move in front of him, and no, no, and he sort of said, nah, Kazam dismisses sort of that idea. And he comes over, and he's starting heading toward me, and he sees the girl. And uh, so he goes toward her and says, hi, what are you doing? And, and I said, uh, champ, she's a, a, a champ too, national age group champion, 12 and under. And he says, you are? He says, uh, show me how you run. And the two of them are jogging around the lobby. And I tell my <laughs> photographer, I said, get, get, get this. And he's intimidated yeah, really? by all the black guards. And so he's pulling back. He, he was Hispanic, but anyway, be, be that as it may, he's anti-racial, whatever. And uh, so he's pulling back, and he's not shooting anything. I said, get them, get them. And so we missed out on having a video of one of the most emotionally warm <laughs> moments I've ever seen in my entire life. And um, really, and then then we we and I could still see that the photographer is in, in, intimidated. So I said, asked Ali. I, I said, can we can we go out into the uh, atrium out here to do the interview? And he said, sure. And so only three of us, the the videographer and, and uh, Muhammad Ali and, and I are the only three out there. And I remember he'd had a, one of his great quotes was. Uh, in the past was, why is it when you go get yourself an ice cream cone, they always put the vanilla scoop on top of the chocolate? And so I said to him, I said, uh, I, 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 I'd like to know, I understand you're coming uh, in to, to see about what's going on in South Phoenix, and you want to see about maybe seeing if you can get the, the chocolate scoop on top of the vanilla. And he goes in a great laughter, and he starts a, a, answering the question about why he's there and, and what he's there for. No, just a great guy. Too bad what's happened to his head, but you get bopped in boxing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think that's too bad. Yeah. But yeah, go, that's go a brutal sport, as we all know. You get pounded in the head that many times, and it's going to have yeah. an effect. Well, that's just one example, everyone, of the uniqueness of this book. You're just these uh, anecdotes of, you know, of some famous people, a moment in time. Walt Brown was there. What are some of the other people that you have in your book? We won't go into any details. We don't want to give away anything. Well, we got more, an umpire. Uh, we got an umpire kicking a player in the shins. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you ask about people. Well, uh, if you want uh, names of people, uh, okay, let me actually quote from the back end of the book because um, I I thank them for impressing my life and. Uh, uh, names and memories, reading a phrase from the book. Uh, as I said at the beginning, memories and impressions subjective. Maybe you'd have Reba McIntyre, Willie Nelson, Buck Owens, Gene Autry on your list. I, I knew all of them. Uh, maybe you'd have Bob Hope, Mickey Rooney, George C. Scott. Cause I, I, I met them and was around them. Uh, and, you know, but basically, uh, we're talking about Jesse Owens, the time spent with Jesse Owens. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, time spent with uh, Dan Marino, uh, Cynthia Potter, the, the diver, Willie Mays, Bill Cosby, uh, Sir Jack Brabham, the driver. I drove him around uh, L.A. <laughs> Will Chamberlain, Ronnie Lott, Lee Trevino, Jerry Rice, uh, and more.
but uh, that's, yes. that's where we're going. Well, we recognize all those names, that's for sure, and, and I think that's what the what's so great about sports. It's 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 kind of a little microcosm of life. It's uh, you know there's so much that goes on in a in a athletic contest that mirrors life, and you meet these extraordinary people that have these incredible skills, but they're just human like you and I, and and struggle with some of the same things that you and I struggle with, but uh, they have this unique view because of the just the sport they play. I mean, uh, there's so much adoration of these people. Uh, you know, as you look back on that, wh what do you draw from it? Is there some things you can draw from that, you know, really? Well, I, uh, think, I think, yeah, I, I, I think definitely that, uh, that there are, uh, Steve, and, you know, it's interesting because the difference in the sports, too, uh, the auto racing uh, it was different. Uh, the the drivers uh, in the '60s and '70s different than today. Uh, in, in all kinds. I mean, the Formula One, the IndyCar racing, the NASCAR, which of course at that time was a nothing, and just uh, you know Southern rednecks, and basically that was it. You know, I mean that that's the way they advertised it. Uh, again, no offense take uh, meant for and right. phrases. Uh, but that's the way they advertise it, and and basketball, NBA, that's that's oh man, the NBA. I mean, you talk to Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, those guys. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciated themselves, but there was no overt ego, there was no chest bumping mm -hmm. or chest pounding, all that kind of nonsense. I mean, yeah, there's some today that that I that don't, you know, that seem like they're really nice folk when you meet them, but. Uh, yeah, a lot of them. It's just, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, and, and I actually blame the NBA uh, for that more than I do the players in the sense that when Michael Jordan came on the scene, the NBA started promoting him as an individual player. And prior to that time, even with Will Chamberlain and, and, and Oscar Robertson uh, and uh, uh, Julius Irving, uh, they were still promoted as team players and how they interacted with their teammates. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we got a little bit of that with Jordan and, and Scottie Pippen maybe or something, but uh, it was totally different. It started moving away, and uh, and I just think that uh, the game today uh, is, well, I think it's sort of wrecked compared to what it was. But ironically, uh, it has now got more viewers and, and everything today than it did at the time back then. So. It, it just uh, mm -hmm. it's like uh, the NFL is now following suit with how they're promoting, uh, following the NBA, and then both of them are uh, have well eclipsed baseball because baseball doesn't hasn't figured out yet how to promote. I think uh, baseball is just the, the American's pastime in quotes, and and they haven't really figured out how to uh, draw larger crowds. So it's very interesting, but, but all of those changes, and then uh, Jesse Owens, and then talking about him and and um i it's just uh you learn from from everybody and the the women athletes they are a whole different variation uh on it and and the the golfers and the tennis players and the uh hockey players and uh, you know the difference between a goalie and a you know wingman or something um right so it's just well before uh, you but before we wrap up our interview, just give us uh, the 
event, and we don't have time to go into it, and we just want to let people know that in one of your chapters, which is titled The Game of the Century, what was the game of the century from, game from of your the point century, of view? Yeah, they still say that uh, it was the uh, 1971 uh, game in, uh, between uh, the University of Nebraska and the University of Oklahoma. Uh, the conference was one, two, three, with Colorado third in national rankings. And Nebraska was one, and Oklahoma was two, and Nebraska and and, uh, uh, and Oklahoma each had already beaten Colorado, and they were meeting, and this amazing game, and and uh, in uh, Norman, Oklahoma, and I was uh, broadcasting it uh, uh, for uh, Nebraska, as when I was in Lincoln, and uh, it just we flew down, uh, just the whole thing, the whole. Uh, the stadium, the whole everything, because and then afterwards uh, they talked about it being the game of the century, and uh, you know it sort of was. It had no stars as such. I mean, to me, uh, the the player that that was the key to the whole operation was Nebraska's defensive nose guard, and if you figure <laughs> that, you know, I mean, it wasn't like it was like thirty. Five thirty. I'd have to look it up again. I don't remember the score. I think thirty-five, thirty-one, or thirty-five, thirty-two, something like that, or thirty-four, thirty-one. Uh, but the point being that uh, uh, it just was. Uh, yes, there were some big plays, but uh, right. it there was no uh, again no no chest by, by, uh, bumping and and no egotistical whatevers and just competence and. Uh, it was just an amazing experience to describe it and to be there. And uh, for for years and decades afterwards, uh, they kept resurrecting and calling it the game of the century, and I've still seen it written as that today. We've been listening to sports commentator, sportscaster, Walt Brown, his book, A Fly on the Wall. Walt, tell us how to get your book. Well, you probably have as much information as I do. I understand it's available <laughs> at Barnes and Noble, and uh, I understand it's available uh, uh, at Amazon, and uh, may be available at other uh, on other internet sure. locations. Uh, but uh, and also, uh, it obviously you could uh, contact uh, Author House, um, which you can uh, uh, get them. Um, I guess anybody go online with for them and right. they will uh, authorhouse.com right authorhouse.com yeah. well Walt we want to thank you for being with us on Author Talk thank you so much hey thank you it was fun you're listening to Author Talk we'll be back right after these messages hi everybody this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. You
Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to TogiNet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on TogiNet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, 40 Years at Saquish Beach, Our Impossible Dream, and the author, Connie Matusik, and Connie joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Connie. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us to share your memories. Forty years uh, in a small community on a remote beach. It's a dream that I'm sure a lot of people have, but you lived it. It was not only your impossible dream, it was your uh, fun and frolic with kids and grandkids on the beach all those years, right? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, uh, Steve, and yes, it sure was. It was 40 years of real pleasure and enjoyment with our family and friends and living on a remote beach facing all types of conditions. So we're talking about uh, 18 chapters that covers all kinds of events and activities and adventures. Uh, But before we get into some of the, the highlights, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you decided to write the book. Sure, sure. I, uh, when I was a young fellow, my dad was in World War II uh, as a private civilian conscripted by the government to work for them, and one of his last assignments was on at Cape Cod at Camp Edwards. Since he was a civilian and I was a young son, he, during the summertime, he rented a cottage and brought my mother and sister down, and we spent two years with him, and it was right next to the ocean, and at that point in time, I fell in love with the ocean and dreamed of someday having a cottage on an ocean beach. Later on, when I went to college, I developed a philosophy that I have had all my life. And the philosophy was, if you want something hot enough and you make a commitment to do it, you can at times accomplish what initially seemed impossible. I met Anne, we got married, had two children. She also loved the beach. And we had an opportunity to buy land on this remote beach, and it was an opportunity to raise two young daughters in an area where we thought it was fantastic, and so therefore we couldn't pass it up. So what year was it when you built the cottage? We built the cottage in 1971. 71, and it was done in a unique way? It was done in a very unique way. It was the 
it was on a peninsula with absolutely no town services, no roads, no electricity, no telephone service. <laughs> and you had to use a four-wheel drive to drive five miles over the beaches and sand dunes to get there. What my dad and I did was we had to haul 30 tons of material in a boat trailer out there, and there was absolutely no power, so everything was done by hand. Wow, what an experience. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to relate to today <laughs> with all the conveniences that we have, but uh, how long did it take you to build it? We actually started construction the first weekend in March, was, uh, which was one where it was warm enough to go out there and live in our SUV overnight. And we finished the outside by July 4th weekend. Now, the outside was just a 24-foot by 40-foot shell. I was completed outside, and the inside was just one huge room. We used truss roofs. And at that time, we stopped working, and we spent our first summer there. And exactly where is it located geographically? Well, geographically, it is in the town of Plymouth, approximately 25 miles southeast of, of uh, Boston. However, to get to downtown Plymouth by land from Saquish, you have to go through the towns of Duxbury and Kingston. And so if I could uh, quote uh, something from the Revolutionary War, from <laughs> Saquish to downtown Plymouth, it was 18 miles by land and four miles by sea. And, of course, if you look across Cape Cod Bay, you can see the tip of Provincetown. And from Saquish to Provincetown, it was 120 miles by land and 18 miles by sea. So even though it's close to Boston, it was like being on a remote Caribbean island. Biographical memoir. That's uh, what this is all about. You just... I'm sure it was hard to decide what to put in the book. There were so many things that uh, you could have shared. Well, what happened is my wife, Ann, had asked me about 10 years ago to write down and uh, write something for our children and grandchildren that we could leave for historical uh, reasons. And what I was doing during that time was every time I thought of something, I jotted down a note, jotted down a note, so forth and so on talked to a number of my friends and told them what I had intended to do. And they would say, well, are you going to include this event or this activity that we were with you on? And so I'd go back and jot down that note. When I started to write about three years ago, I had over 300 notes, and then I tried to put them in a logical order, started out by doing it chronologically, but then ended up by doing it item by item, chapter by chapter, so that each one of the 18 chapters is unique to itself. Well, why don't you share a couple of, uh, just to give us a sample of what your book is about. I know we're talking about not only life on the beach and just the enjoyment of the beach, we're also talking about a lot of fishing, right? There's a lot of fishing. I've got two chapters on fishing. The first one is striped bass and bluefish. And the second chapter is on flounder, cod, and other fish, including uh, catching a 200-pound shark and fishing for bluefin tuna, which go over 900 uh, 
pounds. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Now, in addition to that, let me include two other areas there. I have a chapter on shellfishing and one on uh, lobstering. Now, a host of people have eaten shellfish and have devoured lobsters, but very few have had the opportunity to harvest them. So on the four, two chapters on fishing and the two on, and each on lobstering and shellfishing, I explain the what, where, when, how, and why you do things. And then there are a host of unique stories of our adventures during the 40 years in each of those activities in, in the chapters. And most of the stories are like other stories in the book. Most are positive, some are funny, a few are absolutely hilarious, and there are a couple of life-threatening situations. Life-threatening? What happened? Well, one day when I was out lobstering and coming back across the bay, I got thrown out of the boat into the water by myself, and the boat then started to do a circle, and I was in the middle of it and wow. come very, very close to uh, getting decapitated. To wow. Decapitated. However, right. I'm still here, so you can know what the outcome <laughs> of that was. <laughs> well, the biggest fish you ever caught, what was it? Forty, we, two of us were in a boat one morning, and we tied into two striped bass at the same time, a 44-pounder and a 47-pounder, and luckily we landed both of them, and I think we had 12-pound test line. So many hours clamming, fishing, lobstering, uh, just really the impossible dream. It's something that you probably used to pinch yourself, say, boy, do we really live here? Well, be before we built that, I used to do a lot of trout fishing, uh, but after we built a summer place, we uh, stopped trout fishing and just enjoyed weekends and vacations down at the beach. I mean, the the weather there was just unbelievable. Uh, uh, and as I said, very, very much like being on a remote uh, Caribbean island. Now, you have stories, you've already mentioned uh, life-threatening, positive, some are humorous, and some are just downright out, just just make you laugh, laugh, laugh. Uh, uh, what are some something really humorous or funny that happened that you shared? Well, uh, I, I will tell you a story of one of my good friends, uh, Charlie Judge and his wife Sue, Sue, that were down for the weekend, and we went out clamming in the back bay, and you went clamming on a low tide, very low tide. And you wore sneakers, and you had a pole that you used as a staff, and you walked down into the mud area, and the mud was about three to four inches thick. And we had told Charlie to lean on the staff when he gets stuck in the mud. And being <laughs> new to it, he got stuck, and he didn't lean on the staff. He tried to pull himself backwards, fell into the mud. We heard a flop, tried to get up, did the same thing forward, and a flop into the mud, back the second time, and forward the, the second time, finally worked his way out. And that was the end of clamming for that day. <laughs> Now, now I, I got that story in the book because one of the things that I did right from the start was not put anything in the book that would embarrass or make somebody feel uncomfortable. But knowing Charlie and his personality, every time we get together, we relive that story and we laugh. Well, I think it's obvious to everyone 
uh, how important this this whole setting, the, all these years for you and your family, and that's really an important theme in your book, the importance of family and friends. Yep, family and friends have been very, very important to us. Uh, and the theme of my book really is, uh, you know, family, friends, do unto others as you would want them to do to yourself. And my philosophy in life has always been <clears throat> that if I want you want to do something hot enough, and you make a commitment to do it, you can at times accomplish what initially seemed impossible. And both Anne and my belief are that if you get something from somewhere or someone, you have an obligation to give it back. And we have done that by working on the uh, Gurnett Sacred Association when we retired and came to Florida. We have volunteered at the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge for 18 years, trying to give back to people our enjoyment of wildlife. Well, if everyone would use <clears throat> the philosophy that you've used all your life, the world would be a much better place, that's for sure. My goodness, that's wonderful. Well, you know... It, I, well, I would hope the world would be a better place, but I think a lot of people, if they made those type of commitments, could do things <clears throat> that they talk about but just never make the commitment to do. Right. Now, you have, you have a chapter on pets. Why did you include pets? Oh, we, we had a, a cat, a dog, a bunny, and uh, they have some very, very uh, unique occurrences and idiosyncrasies that occurred in their beach activities. Uh, the cat thought he was a dog and would hide in the <laughs> beach grass and attack, attack dogs as they came by. Uh, and and uh, our dog uh, is in a number of chapters, uh, and it was a hunting dog uh, and just loved to race up and down the beach. But uh, they, they uh, were very much a part of our life. And I think people that uh, enjoy pets We'll get some real uh, kicks out of some of the stories that we have in the book about pets. And then, of course, just being there, nature, wildlife, it just must be uh, literally breathtaking at times. Well, uh, in my chapter on nature, I think I start out with a sentence that nature by its very nature mimics the saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, just touch on a few of the good parts. That would be watching a double rainbow come up on one side of the ocean, go all the way across 180 degrees and set into the pine hills of Plymouth, or being out striped bass fishing. And when I went, I usually went out about a, an hour before sunrise and watching the sun come up over the ocean just mm. like a big fireball. And, right. uh, you know, catching a striped bass would be only secondary to the enjoyment of that morning. And, right. the, and the, the good would be, I mean, the bad would be when a, a cottage got hit by lightning or a car got stuck in the sandbar and was flooded by the ocean. And, mm. of course, the ugly happened twice. It was the uh, blizzard of 78 and the uh, no-name storm of 91, also known as the perfect storm of which a movie was made. Now, on wildlife, I cover basically most of the animals, birds, 
and mammals that either lived at Saquish or transversed there at one time or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was interesting on the animal side to see the uh, balancing and counterbalancing of the coyote and rabbit population, which is <laughs> similar to a number of other species. Right. The birds, this snowy owl was probably the most majestic bird that we saw. And there was one New Year's Eve where one of those birds followed us for a mile down the beach as we walked. It flew from pole to pole in front of us and <laughs> sat until we got there. And on the uh, the mammal side, a very, very interesting story is when a pilot whale washed up on the beach one night and uh, there were the people of Saquish, 75 to 100, did everything we could to try to save its life. Mm. And, of course, the end of that story is in the book. Connie, give us a closing thought. We have time just for a closing thought. Sure. Uh, let me just uh, just say some closing thought would be, Steve, that I am sure <clears throat> that if you enjoy personal stories that are light, factual, easy to read, and are often humorous, you will totally enjoy this book. Well, we appreciate you being with us, Connie. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is available through Author House. It is also available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And I believe there is a hard copy, a soft copy, and an email book. And from what Author House tells me, its distribution is right across the world. You can pick it up on any book distributor anywhere sure. in the world. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Connie, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. I really enjoyed it. 40 years at Saquish Beach. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us 
for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Seeking Absolution, a novel in the university series, and the author is Bruce R. Swinburne. And Bruce joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bruce. Hey, nice, to, nice talking with you. Well, nice to talk to you. This book, murder mystery, love story, uh, kind of an inside look at university life, college life. Well, let me read a little bit about your book. This is what you write. A fastidious killer is taking the lives of co-eds on the campus of Great Rivers University. Mike Noble, Lynn Bosson, and Security Director Bob Bear Drummer are all involved in stopping the killer. So there it is, folks. It's it's a page turner. It's fast and furious. And uh, what brought you to write this book? Well, I've always loved writing. Uh, in in uh, university life, most of my writing was more serious writing, but I've always enjoyed writing. And, you know, sometimes you start a book. Sometimes you start a book and you don't know exactly where it's going to take you. I had a false start or two on this book, but then I got into the story and uh, and I could not stop. There are surprises in the book. There were surprises in the book for me because there were things that my characters turned up and did that surprised me even. <laughs> so, so you let, sometimes you let a story take you where it will. Sure, sure. I will tell you this. The response from people who have read the, uh, this book and my second book, which is called STEM, uh, colon, then Cells That Divide, uh, that uh, in both cases, people have been enthusiastic about it, they couldn't wait for the second book, and uh, some of them have already uh, got it. It's just recently out. So anyway, Mike Noble, the lead character, uh, he is a graduate professor, vice president of this university, Great Rivers University. He's a lot like you because of your extensive academic background. Well, there's, there is a little bit of me in uh, Mike Noble, and there's a little bit of Mike Noble in me, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, and, you were instrumental in, as I'm reading here, restoring one college and building another college. So, you, you know, you are a builder. Yes. Yes, I was. It's, it, that is correct. And... Um, and well, yes, <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> I was president of a of a college in Connecticut, a small college, and that uh, that we, in our time there, brought about its first full uh, uh, full New England Association accreditation, and we increased its enrollment by uh, something close to forty percent over the few years that I was there. So here we have Mike Noble, this main character. He's lost his wife, who was killed by a drunk driver, but all of a sudden he's thrown into a murder mystery because co-eds are being killed on the campus. That's right. 
Yep. So tell us a little bit about a little bit more about Mike. Well, uh, Mike has Mike has known. <clears throat> excuse me. I'll tell you about the love part of the story. Mike has. It's, it's, it really is a love story that grows out of the needs of two very needy people. He's lost his wife. He is reluctant to take on a new relationship, but at some point. Uh, she is very interested in him. Her name is Lynn Boson, and she will become the uh, uh, title for the third book. It will be called Lynn's Journal, because she will write about her experiences. She's, a, she's an abused child. She was an abused child, but she was a savvy child. She would, uh, she's very smart, and uh, There'll be many things that will be revealed about her in Seeking Absolution, and many more in STEM, and many more when she writes her journal, which is called Lynn's Journal, the third book in the trilogy. Uh, <clears throat> Mike Noble, Mike, at the very beginning of the book, is shocked to get a call in the middle of the night and in fact, I think it's on the first page, uh, telling him of the death of a co-ed found in four plastic, black plastic bags along a road near a family housing section. He gets this call from his friend, Bob Drummer, goes down, and of course they're very concerned about this. Um, the body is there. It takes two or three days for them to find actually who it is. And uh, the family is notified, and, uh, and finally, and uh, they come down, pick up the things in the, in the home. And she is, she's been her roommate. There's, she's a sophomore. Her roommate is um, a young man. So there's right away there's the assumption that... Uh, that he he has to be involved and has to be considered a suspect. So uh, so that uh, that sends the security people off in that direction for a while, and they discover that that's uh, not not exactly the way things look to them. Ten weeks later, there's another young woman killed. There, by the way, there. They're all killed in the same way, by a massive dose of uh, drugs. And, there, and uh, that woman is found in a different location, but very close to the same location. There's a third uh, uh, woman killed, and a fourth that Mike has been uh, involved in, I mean by involved in, he's been on her uh, her uh, doctoral committee, and in fact, he introduced uh, her doctoral committee. If I can find this, I will read it to you. Oh yeah, here it is. Uh, Margaret Chapin, he's, this is the way he introduces her uh, to her orals. This is the way, if you say there's a little mic in me, that's correct, because I use this many times when I was uh, opening the meeting for the final orals 
for doctoral graduates. This is what I said in the book. Margaret Chapin, in the 16th century, after hearing a sufficient number of courses, a student would present himself to be examined. Yes, all males. We will be less formal today. However, what takes place here is nothing less than what the real university has been involved in throughout the ages, the continuing search for truth. Anyway, Margaret Chapin turns out that she is likely to be the final victim in the book. But Mike has figured something out about this uh, man who was doing the killing, and he knows him. And with the help of Lynn and with the help of Bob Drummer, uh, who, by the way, at this point in the book, is no longer uh, living, uh, they, Mike goes to the place where the man lives, breaks in, and stops the killer in the process. Now, there's some elements about how the drugs are administered and about how and what takes place that I will not <laughs> will not <laughs> discuss. Sure. Here, understand. But, yeah. I understand. Okay. So the love story between Lynn and Bob, uh, Lynn and Mike is real crucial to the whole story. Oh yes, oh yes. And then in, in the by the way, in the second book, they are married. They are married, and that is a, that's a, another totally different story in itself. She's working in a stem cell lab at the time, and uh, and there's the opening uh, the opening page of that book indicates uh, that an M16 has been fired and uh, and uh, at the laboratory from an adjoining building from the third floor of this science this uh, this laboratory and uh, it. It uh, injures a man, but he survives. Uh, later in the book, it's sort of revealed that they were trying, the person was trying to get somebody else. But they have some difficulty there, too, of figuring out just who this is that is, uh, that is so bent upon uh, bent upon stopping the uh, stem cell research. And uh, of course, uh, of course you might expect there's a little twist to that story that, uh, that also connects Lynn back to the, uh, to the man who is directing this youth to uh, fire on people, to kill people, and to even fire on Mike and Lynn's house at one point. So that gives you more than you need to know about that story. Too. No, that was good. That was give us a, a real uh, big picture of both books. Now, Seeking Absolution, why the title? Well, because they are two, two needy people. They are very two needy people. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike uh, lost his wife as she was going to his first wife as she was going to to her school one one morning, and uh, 
and he and the two of them had had an argument about whether she should give up a couple of days at school to go with him to a to a conference and uh, and he's feeling uh, he's feeling like oh you know if i had just if i hadn't had this this argument if I hadn't treated her so badly on the morning that she was leaving, maybe she would have been concentrating better. Maybe she would have, this guy that was, he, he was a, actually a sleeping inebriated driver that just went through a, right, went through, right through a stop sign and crushed her. So he's, he's needy in that respect. Now, Lynn, on the other case, has been needy all her life. Uh, she was abused as a child. She's, uh, uh, she's never married. She's um, she's savvy and smart, and uh, and uh, more will be revealed, of course, about her in Lynn's journal. But uh, I'm not ready to reveal any of that for now. But <laughs> but uh, uh, they find each other. They have admired each other in, in ways. Lynn, even before, even while Mike was still married, would show up places where Mike was. Where he was speaking to uh, to different groups around in the university, she'd be there, and uh, they kind of uh, there, there was a thing, and also uh, uh, Lynn came into his office once to advise a student who who had asked for her to be there with him because he'd gotten in trouble and was being suspended from from the university. But there was an appeal at what they, what we called the presidential level. But Mike Noble, a vice president, heard all those appeals. And uh, there were uh, there were some. Uh, they, I uh, spent a lot of time connected with each other. And uh, as they left, uh, uh, Mike allowed the uh, student to remain in school. And uh, a hand was on her back as she left a little longer than uh, good taste perhaps would would think was proper. <laughs> That's enough on that. But anyway, <laughs> they they find each well, other in the, in the first book. You, you obviously understand that conflict makes for a good story. And, of course, uh, a love affair makes for a good story, and you're now taking these characters into the second and third books. So congratulations, Bruce. Uh, Seeking Absolution, a novel in the university series. Bruce, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it from Amazon or, uh, or um, yeah, Amazon, probably the place that most people are getting it. I... Mm -hmm. I I peddle a few books around this area, but uh, but that's a that's a losing proposition because I just uh, do not have that all those contacts. But a lot of people have enjoyed the books. The last time I looked on Amazon, the first book had was given four stars out of five. The second right. book was giving was given five stars out oh, of five. Wow. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. So you're getting some. Good comments on the book. Uh, it is this great murder mystery and a love story and a peek into university life. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being with us on Author Talk. It's been uh, it's been fun talking with you. Uh, people will uh, love the stories. They'll love the book. Uh, one, if I can just say one other thing, 
uh, one reader wrote to me, I cannot put your books down, as with your first book, I sneaked off and find myself taking the book with me to doctor's offices, to the gym, to bed. Your books are irresistible. You captured me right from the beginning when writing. <laughs> when writing, the birds stopped singing. That was the fir first chapter. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, good for you, Bruce. And uh, sounds like you'll be getting many more of those kinds of reviews because of the the characters will live on. We'll probably be talking again down the road. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Enjoyed talking with you. <laughs>